We are about to talk to a non-traditional former foster youth. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I'm here with Kat, and I'm also here with some special guests today. We have Nicole and Brenna in the studio. Welcome, guys. Hello. Thank you so much for being here, Brenna. We have a very important question to ask you. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? So I was trying to prepare myself for this because I knew you guys were going to ask me. <laughs> I'm going to go with my go-to not seasonal because, it, you know, pumpkin spice season. So you have that drink. But I'm going to go to my go-to that like my all around year round drink, which is a chai tea. I get it with almond milk and two shots of espresso. So it's a dirty chai. Um, it's super simple. Nothing like too complicated or anything like that. But dirty chai, two shots. Yeah, I like it. Um, that is very similar to the Elise. You know Elise, right? Yes. In real life? Yes, in okay. real life. And do, you, do you know in my fake life? <laughs> well, there's there's real life and there's fostering the future life. So um, her drink is well known. Do you know exactly what her drink is? I don't. So mine is kind of a combination of both of yours. The Elise is an iced chai latte with vanilla sweet cold foam and two shots of espresso. That sounds good. I'll have to try it. The I've the cold foam on top has been a new thing for me to dabble in. Someone recommended it when I got no dairy for my pumpkin spice latte. They're like, oh, get the pumpkin spice cold foam and I was like okay so that's how I get my pumpkin spice so I tie with the no boat cream pumpkin spice cold foam and that is amazing the pumpkin spice cold foam tongue twister there <laughs> uh, is really good I like the vanilla sweet cold foam I've been adding the cinnamon on and it just makes my chai like the bomb so yeah I'll have to try the Elise it's really good and then I'll let her know that I tried her drink <laughs> <laughs> Brenna I would love if you would tell us your story. Um, so before I share my story, just because my story for childhood was in New Jersey, I just like to put out there that the way um, departments work in different states work differently. And while, you know, Florida, it's privatized, um, New Jersey's completely state run. So some of the things that I talk about, you may be like, well, how did they do that there? You know, there's different policies and procedures. So I just like to throw that out there in the beginning. So when people are hearing the story, they're not like, well, how'd they get away uh -huh. with that? Or why'd they do that? <laughs> or, so uh, a little bit about my story. Um, my parents were high school sweethearts and they decided to move to Illinois from New Jersey when they, right after they got married. I was planned in Chicago, Illinois, where they were living at the time right after high school. About 
two years into their marriage, they tried for a second child. The child did not make it. And that led to eventually, on top of having a not healthy relationship, it led to a divorce ultimately for my parents. Um, I have no memory of them being together ever. I have pictures of them being together, um, but I don't How know. old were you when this happened? Um, two. You were two. Yes. Was it a miscarriage or was the baby born? It was a stillbirth. Yeah. Um, my mom had to carry pretty much almost a full term. There's a whole other story for another day that um, there was uh, concern that my mom had a meningitis strand and then she gave it to me as an infant and then she was pregnant and the child got it and there's a whole like another story about that whole medical mystery of how I have a rare chronic disease and we can talk about that another day. <laughs> it was a stillbirth. Uh, my father always had the uh, mental and emotional abusive side to him even when he was in a relationship with my mother at a young age. My stepfather was my father's friend growing up in high school so I get to hear the perspective of someone who was a friend to my mother growing up up and seeing her be in that relationship with my father. So it's been an interesting experience to hear that side of seeing, like hearing someone who watched my mother be in an abusive relationship. Um, they got divorced um, around when I was two. They both moved back to New Jersey at the time. My mom moved in with my grandparents. Dad moved in with his parents. And from there, it was a 50-50 custody for quite some time. Eventually, when I was around four, my father decided to get remarried and I eventually had two siblings. My brother, the middle child, D, and then my sister, who's the baby, BG. So my brother's five years younger than me. My sister's seven years younger than me. I would call myself a targeted child in this situation, um, especially because they did remain in home when I wasn't and I was removed. And ultimately, my father signed his rights off of me. During the time of the 50-50 custody and growing up, uh, my mom had me with guidance counselors at a very young age, as well as therapists, just to process the divorce. And she was very open-minded for, you know, 20 years ago. Um, my mom was adopted. Um, so I think that kind of prompted her to get me in services early because I know she has had that own her own struggle. I remember um, in second grade, I was part of a guidance counselor group called the Banana Splits Therapy Elementary School Program with the Aww. guidance counselor. And we would make banana splits and talk about how we had parents who were separated. My mom tried to, you know, help me as early on as she could, but it was a great program. The yeah. guidance counselor was great. Her name was Mrs. Moore. Um, I still remember her. <laughs> we continue on. My mom has me most Monday through Friday, essentially. My dad has me on the weekends, except for one weeknight. I stay there. Um, and that's every weekend. And that's every weekend. You're with dad, so yes. you're never with mom on the weekends. At, at one point, it changed somewhere as I got older, where it was like one weekend a month I stayed with my mom because it got to the point where my mom couldn't do things with me because yeah. she didn't have me on the weekend. And, yeah. my, and my mom was one of those like bust her ass single mothers. She had three jobs at one point. She had um, wow. all my both of my grandmothers, my, my stepfather at that time's mother as well as my my adoptive grandmother um, were always at the house taking care of me. I was in seven dance classes. I was in drums. Aww. I was in softball, volleyball. Like my mom worked her butt off to try to give me as much as a quote unquote normal childhood that she could for the circumstances that we were in. So at the end of the day, I always say like my mom tried her, her effing best <laughs> <laughs> to take care of me and give me, you know, hobbies and friends and things of that nature. The friends thing didn't come very easily to me, but that was because because I was in so many <laughs> hobbies all the time and with the trauma that came with my story. But so as I got older, went through elementary school, when I was about seven years old, that's when like the first, I would say, legally documented incident happened in terms of a case was open because my father had a domestic dispute with my stepmother. I was not with them um, during the week when DCF worker came to the house for my father to like 
do the report and all of that stuff. You weren't there when the DCF worker came, but were you there when the violence happened? So we were in a hotel room. We, as in me and my siblings, and they were at a bar. So it happened outside of the home. And then it came. Yes. See, we were out and we would go to Atlantic City all the time um, as a family and we would get a hotel room and we thought it was really cool when we were kids. But you were seven. Yes. I believe my aunt was there somewhere. From what I understand, the domestic dispute happened outside of the hotel room somewhere and then we got sent to our aunt's to be watched while things unfolded. And in that time of us getting sent to taken care of by my aunts, they called my mom to come pick me up because, you know, police officers getting called, there's kids, DCF's now getting involved. And when the first case happened and they came to interview the family, my dad didn't mention that I was a child that he had. So when they said, who were your children? They, he just listed my brother and my sister and they weren't verbal yet. At this time, this was, you know, I was, was seven. Do you I think just, he was trying to protect himself or protect you? No, 100% protect himself. No matter how much I, you know, look back on this situation, it was because the children, my brother and sister were nonverbal. My brother was two. My sister was an infant. And I was the only one who would have talked. And if they asked me, you know, if mm-hmm. my dad's ever laid my hands on me, I would have said yes. Or if my dad drinks too much, I would have said yes. When the first call was made, he was already... Becoming abusive to you in the home. Yes. Um, How old were you when he started becoming abusive towards you? I can't remember a time in my life where he wasn't abusive to me. I can only recall him screaming and yelling at my face and dragging me down the hallways. He was very, very mentally and emotionally abusive. Pretty much everyone in his life. In terms of physical abuse, from what I know, it was only me and my stepmother. Yes, we asked my mom if she would testify in court against my stepmom saying that he never laid a hand on my biological mom because he actually, he never did, but he was mentally and emotionally abusive. That's like a form of abuse right there. Yes. Asking, asking a victim. For her to say, yeah. I never did this. Nothing ever happened. Yeah. So now can you go and tell everyone else nothing ever happened? I mean, I have a, a degree in psychology and the more I learn about like narcissistic symptoms and that type of nature, like he checks every single box in that category. I'm not giving an excuse, but just just kind of for the generations here, he was also raised with a father who, from what I've understand from my grandmother and my uncles telling me stories, um, was 10 times worse than what he did. I think he literally was trying the best he could with the situation he had. He just didn't know any better nor was willing to get the resources to be better. And I think it can be really hard to accept that like someone did the best they could, but you're also hurt. But those two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. And it took me a very long time to get there. There's multiple sides to this story, whether it's my father's side, my stepmother's side, my sibling's side, my grandmother's side, and none of them are wrong. Everyone has their own truth. Right. And I think Definitely. that's really important to recognize, especially when you think about bio parents. Like, they have their truth of what happened, and they tried their hardest, even if you, it's not in your mind of what trying your hardest is. Yeah. Like, it could right. be their, they literally gave their 100%. From their perspective. From their perspective. And when we look at a case or the kids in our home and don't consider their perspective, it's easy to be like, how could they have done this? Yeah. If you were to know, like, what they're struggling with every day, whether that's their emotional health, uh, their drug addiction, you know, they might feel like, hey, I didn't OD this week. I'm doing pretty dang yeah. good. Or, I mean, for people who have, you know, were abused and now are the abusers like, hey, I didn't hit them this week. I only screamed at them. Like, that may yeah. be a level of 
being better this week to them, right. yeah. which sounds horrible when you're like, how could you ever lay your hands on someone? But for someone where that's all they know, like it's yeah. it's literally telling someone the sky's purple when it's blue. Like you can't convince them. I've heard from multiple kids. I don't want to be like my dad, right? Because they're in care. They've gotten services and they're getting counseling. It is very clear to them that they don't want to be that when there's a tantrum or something happens and there's anger. Then there's shame and it triggers them. But it's like everybody gets frustrated. Right. Where they're just like, this is exactly Uh what was done to me. I don't want to be this. How do I fix this? What do I do? The first legal case that opened was a domestic dispute. He got like um, anger management given to him. Um, My stepmother actually went out of the home. I'm not sure if that was court ordered or not. But for a while, I know... Um, that my siblings were only coming over under supervised visits for quite some time. It was about a six-month span where my stepmother was no longer living with my father. Were you going there when so, she was living there? I so you were by yourself Because they with had him. no idea he had another child. Right, so he was just having normal visits. So I was still going on the weekends. Was it, were his behaviors towards you amplified or about the same? So he actually went reversed where those are some of the actually better memories I have of him. And I think it was because mm. at that point I was the only person in his life, mm. to be honest with you. Like, we went to Six Flags. We did fun things. He oh, took wow. me to softball games because at that point he didn't have his wife. He didn't have his two other he kids. Was it had. was just me. Yeah. And then he was by himself during the week. Visits escalated for my siblings and it went from supervised to weekend visits. So then all three of us were going there on the weekends. And same thing. I think it was like he was trying to make up for screwing up because that's how abusers are. So yeah. they like to say sorry. So we were going in trips and doing these fun things and going to farms. And those are some of the best pictures I have of me with my siblings, with my father. And it's that one part of his life where he didn't have anyone else besides his kids because everyone else left him alone. And he was being Supervised. And he was being supervised and watched and had anger management and, had to and take couldn't classes drink. And, and only right. had them on the weekends right. when he probably had less anxiety, right? So this man has never not been with a woman. He was with my mother. Then he was with the woman he's actually currently married to for about three years of my toddlerhood. And then he married my stepmother for 20 years. And then when they got divorced, he went back to the woman he dated between my stepmother and my mother. So mm. now they're married. That woman's very nice. And she raised my sister since... My dad and my stepmother have been divorced. She's very nice. So he's always had a woman to be there to support him. So I think him having to be on his own in that instance threw him quite a curveball. Um, about six months after that, my stepmother moves back in and it's like all back to normal. Like nothing ever happened. There was no domestic dispute. He never had to take anger management. He never had any drinking issues. And we're back to um, the Bacardi and water bottles because that was his go-to. Do you remember it being that immediate? I know you were young. Like as soon as it appeared that DCF kind of was had stepped out, classes were finished, everybody moved back in. It was immediately back to that. So in the time of my childhood, like I couldn't tell you as a child, like, oh, DCF stopped and now things are bad again. But looking back, like, yes, it was just like that. Like, oh, no one's watching. Back to the way I was. Mm. So it wasn't like he was trying for a period of time and then over the years went back to his habits. It was the minute he wasn't being watched. And and it happens a a lot through his story of me watching from the outside in my adulthood is, you know, he'll get in a fight with my stepmother when they were still married and he'd get sober for a year or he'd get in a, you know, get in a fight with my grandmother and my 
uncle and get sober for a year. And I've I've watched him on this battle very long. I believe that at that point when that first case opened, that's kind of when my mother started like, okay, I have to protect myself and my daughter because that following Thanksgiving, that was the first instant that I can recall where he got extremely physical with me um, to the point where he grabbed me and lifted me up by my shirt in the corner because I said I was tired. And he said I wasn't tired. He said there was something wrong and I had to tell him. When I came home and told my mother that because there was bruises around my neck, she had me start documenting everything in a journal. And that's kind of where things started getting really serious for my mother in terms of I was writing the journal down. She was reading it. She was throwing it to the guidance counselor she had me with. She didn't feel like she had enough to do anything about it, if that makes sense. So she just kept on having me write every incident down in the journal. Really smart. Really smart that she had you doing that while she was telling her daughter to do these things and sending her off into a home where she knew these horrible things were going to happen because she literally had no choice. Yeah, like handling the situation so proactively when it's your child. But so we started with the journaling and Thanksgiving and recording the accidents. That Christmas or the Christmas after where he stole my cell phone that I had to buy me a new one for Christmas. He was going to get me a razor. So what had happened was uh, I was over there over the weekend. I ran outside. He took the phone when I wasn't looking. I went back to my mom's the next day and then I thought my phone was missing. And I started going into all out panic because I thought my dad was going to beat me to death because I lost my phone that he was paying for because Ugh. that's how I was programmed at that point. It was a man where if I got an A and not an A plus, I was mentally deteriorated because I was a piece of shit. I thought that it was going to be the end of time if I went back and told him I lost my phone. It got to the point where my mother and I, which you talked about the proactiveness, we made a game plan of how I would run away and where I would go to oh, if he no tried to get hands on me. Because she was scared for my life, but she didn't know what to do with it. So it was like, okay, you're going to go next door. You're going to tell your neighbors if they don't answer, you're going to go to the Wawa and ask the guy to call so that you can call your mom because you had to run away. And like we had a game plan of where I was going to go. Oh if, my gosh. If I show up and tell him my phone's gone and he starts beating me. And then it just so happens that he stole my phone to give me a razor and it was all a joke. It was psychological torment for me as a child in that household. And he... 1,000% knew that. He 1,000% knew that. There's no way yeah. he didn't know that that's what totally. it was going to do to you. And a cruel trick. And how old were you then? Nine? Seven, eight, nine. Yeah. Around that area. Um, I can't imagine telling my seven, eight, nine-year-old to write how to I know. I can't. The I have kids that age. I can't imagine telling them I have them an eight-year-old, yeah. You know, seven, eight, nine goes by documenting anytime he's getting physically, emotionally, mentally bad. When I was about 10 years old, I was about to turn 11. It was the month of my birthday month. I was playing chess with my brother. I remember my grandmother telling me that I need to teach him as an older sister that it's okay to lose. So I beat him and he started crying. Then it escalated to a complete physical abuse, emotional abuse, mentally abuse situation with just me. My brother and sister got put in a room and they closed the door. So like that was... Like a plan thing that it happened. So your father like specifically put them away so they weren't in there for because he was being protective of them. I think so. Or didn't want the witnesses. More so that um, mm-hmm. I believe so because at that point my brother was able to speak. I mean I was ten so he was five so he had full sentences at that point. My sister was two or three, three. so she probably wouldn't have been able to do anything. But yeah. my brother would have been able to talk if something happened. Essentially, I got. Dragged into my bedroom. It was carpet, so I got rug burn all over my knees. And it was an older house where the vents were on the floor. So my knees got dragged over the vents and it cut up my knees. Honestly, like the physical abuse wasn't as bad as the mental and emotional abuse of being told that I should go dig my own grave and things of that nature. 
um, that made this night the most memorable in terms of trauma for me and how he treated me. Like, I would have much rather the physical abuse than be telling, like, have my father tell me that I should go dig my own grave and die. My stepmother was there at the time in the room, just standing there and not protecting. And for a long time, I had a resentment towards her against that. She was protecting herself, wasn't she? But she, she had been physically abused by my father in the past as well. So now being a grown woman who has been in abusive relationships, I recognize that she was protecting herself and probably her children who were yeah. in the other room. I, I no longer have a resentment towards her for that. Betrayal that I felt from my stepmother in a sense because I was like, out of anyone, like, she'll protect me because he has hurt both of us. Like, she's not going to let him do that to me. But and She's an adult and, and you're a kid. Yeah. She didn't come through, but at the end of the day, I think it was so she wouldn't, you know. I mean, she was probably she wanted to, to be for their kids. Yeah, she was probably like totally activated and in fight, flight, fight or, or freeze. freeze. And she just know? happened to freeze in front of him while yeah. he was beating me. She probably been in enough situations that you can't recall now. I'm not saying it was right or yeah. anything, but and not excusing it at all. Um, but she had probably been in enough situations where he was physically abusive towards her, and maybe even at some point protecting her own children. Yeah, or thinking he was going to do something like. Maybe she was afraid she would Couldn't. amplify it or he, maybe she thought she could calm him down if she didn't. But still, it's like the bottom line is it's non-protective. There's like some maturity and recognizing that you've grown up, but also your parents were growing up when they were raising you yeah. and that they they evolve, yeah. you know, as they get older. And They were together for about 20 years, but ultimately she left him. So ultimately, I think she grew up and realized what type of relationship she was in. The abuse happened. I got left in my room crying. And um, three hours later, this night is still very vivid in my mind, no matter how much older I get. He made me a bagel with peanut butter on it because that was like our snack and asked me to come out of my room and hang out with him. Like nothing had ever happened, which made it that much more traumatic for me because I was like, you just told me to go die. And now you want to share a bagel with me. I was thinking trauma bonding, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of just a cycle with him all the time. But because that case was so severe in terms of the abuse, it's the most clear memory I have of the aftermath. And so we we shared the bagel and I woke up the next morning and my mom picked me up and I told her everything on the car ride home. And that was the last time I ever lived with him. I can't even imagine what your mom went through. So from there, she immediately had me write it down that night when we got home because they lived about an hour from each other. And then from there, she got an attorney. Attorney said, you need to file a police report. She filed. She went to go file a police report. Report. They told her she had to do it in the city he lived in. So we had to drive all the way back to where he was. Actually found this out as an adult, but we drove past him driving to the police department, which I'm sure was very scary for my mother. Yeah. Right? Um, I didn't realize it happened as a child. I was probably like on my phone or yeah. something. She went but to file she the, saw it. Yeah. She went Jeez. to file the police report and then they said they were going to call it in. She waited 24 hours and didn't hear anything, which I'm assuming they were probably going to call it in and just didn't get around to it. Ultimately, my mother called in the child abuse report for my father. And from there, the case opened. DCF went, what the fuck? He has three kids. <laughs> um, yeah, that's they, when they learned about yeah, you three years later. The way, there was another kid there. They were like, oh my God, this man has another child, which I think aggravated them the most out of everything. Yeah, I bet. Because they, you know, were manipulated and lied to. Yes. And that's their job is to protect children and they didn't know I existed. So they probably looked at this as he's a harm to the kids because there's DV, but he's not beating up his kids. But that's because they didn't even know you existed, let alone you were also getting beat. Yeah. So I don't want to say he never emotionally abused my siblings. Um, They have a better relationship with him um, in a different aspect. I think because of all of the cases and everything he went through with me, I don't know if he did it because he wanted to be better or did it because he didn't want to get caught anymore. 
But the way he raised them after I left the situation was different than how he raised me. Even like three kids who live in the same house at the same time and they're just a few years apart, they totally have different versions of, they get different versions of their parents too. It's like... The case opens, DCF gets involved. I remember my my case manager coming and talking to me, interviewing me, asking to look at my knees, but they were healed by the time because it was just a couple bumps and bruises it wasn't nothing like where I needed stitches or anything interviewing me asking me about the story telling the story again and then them going to court I I heard from my mom later on that when they went to his house he tried to throw all his alcohol in the garbage and they went through his garbage can but he was like that's not mine I don't drink I've been sober like that kind of between all the lying about the child and the because I was at the age that I was I was a lot more aware than I think he gave me credit Credit for for because I was like no he just had a full Bacardi on the counter and then he was drinking those Coors Light bottles where the mountains changed color when it was the right temperature. Yeah. So I was able to tell the case manager. But you were probably more tuned in to what he was drinking than anybody because I would venture to bet that based on how much he was drinking might determine what your experience was going to be with him. Yes. Whereas getting drunk and flying off the handle as much maybe on your siblings but you were probably really tuned into oh geez this is how much he's drinking tonight I better be real quiet. Yeah, he had a one of those like plastic, I don't know, 7-Eleven cups or whatever that was Yankee brand because it was like, we lived in New Jersey and they had gone to the World Series or something like that. It was like a World Series souvenir cup. And like that was his drinking cup. And I remember that because anytime oh. I saw that cup, I'd be like, okay, I have to be careful because he has his mm-hmm. drinking cup. That's yeah. his drinking cup. You're probably so hypervigilant. Around him, around his family, because even he'd get in fist fights with his brothers, my uncles. And like, so I was always worried, like, even if I'm not going to be the problem and escalate him like please no one else set him off like that's kind of how I felt all of the time like everyone like don't upset dad because I don't because at the end of the day when we come home if he's still angry I'm going to get the front end of the stick and be the one who he takes his anger out on. So the case was open. I talked to the case managers. They went to court. Uh, My mom requested the first time we went to court, which is like equivalent to like the shelter or whatever, that his visitation be suspended until further notice. And the judge read my journal at that time and agreed. And then from there, my dad requested mediation. And so that went on a couple times. They kept going back and they kept going back. And then ultimately, my mom said that she kept telling him that I didn't want to see him and that they just don't like they don't want anything from him but we just don't want you in our lives anymore and so ultimately the case closed with he had no visitation um his rights were still intact and the case closed with my mother having having me um custody hadn't changed at that time it was just visitation from there uh about five years go by I try to stay in contact with my siblings but it doesn't work and so like my, we try to send emails to my stepmom and communicate with them but we just get like my dad emailing me back and controlling the situation and mm. not letting me have a conversation with them um, I found out he told my siblings that I broke my leg and that's why I wasn't coming to visit for quite some time wow that must have been some leg break <laughs> well, and I had broken my whole thing was I broke my bones all the time when I was a kid because I did a whole bunch of sports and I was like I literally was on crutches there like two years prior with the broken like why would I not come visit my family because I had a broken leg. The kids, your brother and sister yeah. were younger. Yeah, and they, they were five and three at yeah, the time. and connect that. Or and also, they didn't have the same experience with your dad that you did. And if they had, they might have been like, Hmm. recognizing yeah. that he was just controlling the situation. Whereas since they didn't have that specific experience, maybe they didn't look at it the same way. And that's kind of where I was talking about where everyone has a different side to the story, because I learned that for a very long time, he was feeding the entire paternal side of my family lies 
about what happened. Like most people on my father's side of the family to this day, until if they decide they want to listen to this podcast, will have no idea what my side of the story was. They just heard his version of it and why my mother took me away from him, which is really hard when you're talking to aunts and uncles as an adult now. And they're like, well, this is what your father said about you. So you're a piece of shit. There's just no understanding of what I went through in my story. You were 10. Yeah. And they were blaming you, these adults, not just your father, and still saying and thinking you were a piece of shit. I mean, just hearing your story, they know. Like, yeah, they've got to know who your dad is. I'm sure these are people who walk around on eggshells around him because he has anger issues, clear anger issues. They know not to ask more questions. There's a reason they didn't contact your mom, contact you, because they know. Like, I'm sure they walk on eggshells around him. I would say for most of them, it is uh, a little bit, I don't want to say hereditary, because there's a whole bunch of science out there that says that, like, abuse and substance abuse and all that stuff isn't hereditary. But... There is a generational repeat on my father's side of the family for substance abuse, for bipolar disorder, for Huntington's disease, for narcissistic, you know, controlling men and occasionally women, but mostly the men and just not being the fathers that they should be over and over and over again. So yes, to the ones who also what I'm going to say is got out of my father's side of the family because, there, you know, I have an uncle who's really successful and a cousin who's happily married and things like that. But for the ones who stayed in in the shit they're still in his perspective but they're also still in the shit too so hopefully yeah. one day maybe they can find themselves and grow out of this yeah and step out of the shit. i mean i just wonder if some of them are the like the version of your stepmother that could only stand there and watch yeah. and knew that it was dangerous to intervene or to ask questions you know? or if they were growing up in that same home that your dad was where they were abused like that and seeing this as, oh, well, he's doing better than our dad did or, or even like the kind of household where you're even allowed to change the narrative. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, in healthy families, you know, you like stick, you know, on the truth. And when you have enmeshment and boundary issues and toxic behavior, yeah. then you just go with yeah. what the angriest, most destructive person in the room is saying because yeah. you know not to ask questions. And, and I did have an aunt and uncle. Uncle actually has the same father as my father who offered to supervise sibling visits for us. Um, I think that maybe happened once right in the beginning for my siblings. But then after that, there was a good eight years that went by where I didn't have any contact or communication with them. You are technically in care. Yes. So for how long were you technically in care? I think the case was open for six months. Okay. So you had caseworkers for visiting your mom's house mm-hmm. and like her name was Dana <laughs> you just had one yes the whole time the whole time oh my gosh so, <laughs> I hope she has a good pension now because so, she stayed six she's months with there. the agency yeah. <laughs> I mean she's, she probably was made like director of the whole agency by the end if she was there six months <laughs> yeah. was your relationship with her any part of what made you want to go into social work when I was going to school for social work I didn't want anything to do with child welfare because I felt like it was going to trigger me too much as a child who was in the system. So I actually strayed away from it as much as I could when I first started in social work. I did like criminal rehabilitation and things like that. And then when I moved down to Florida, it was the only job available. And so I was like, well, I'll just do it for a little bit. And then I did it. And then I realized how much I can empathize with these children who have been abused and have no connection with like their bio parents because of the way they freedom and things especially with the teenagers just going through it as like a a middle school age child I realized how much I understand them as opposed to someone who's a case manager who has a music degree and kind of is just doing this for pay nothing against them we need everyone to care who cares but um your experience is definitely but I realized how much I understood them more Mm -hmm. so than a lot of people who were representing them and then at that point I was kind of I was like I can't not help them anymore I've seen case managers who 
didn't have the empathetic attachment to the children that I've had, maybe because they couldn't comprehend it. Nothing against them. Just the fact of if you haven't lived through trauma, it's hard to understand how it impacts you. They, it was just there for a, a paycheck for them. And there was no like, oh, my God, I have to be in the child welfare system for the rest of my life. Well, you have to work really hard to be a case manager and you have to have a good education and you don't get paid a lot of money. So if you're not there because you want to help kids, like, oh, why are you there? Well, and then that's why the turnover rate's so high as yeah. well. When I was 15 years old, my mom got remarried. She asked me if I wanted to change my name so everyone could have the same last name. Because now 15 years old, my mom and I have had a different last name my whole life. I've had my father's. She's had her maiden name since I was two. I was really excited because we were going to have this whole picture perfect family and have the same last names and all that stuff. So I was like, yeah, this is awesome. Like, I would love to have the same last name as like my mom and my stepdad. That's great. Because my dad still had his rights intact. She had to go in front of a judge and have either him not show up or him say, yes during mediation again because we always had to go to mediation (laughs) with him he said that he would be willing to sign if he didn't have to pay child support anymore so my father signed his rights off of me at 15 years old so that he no longer had to pay child support um and my name changed to my stepfather's name at that time at 15 he finally signs his rights off of me um at that time my mom also had me go start going to i say a real therapist it just wasn't a guidance counselor um because she was starting to recognize the ptsd and the symptoms and i had a lot of anger issues as a kid as well because i was around it and that's how my father was and that's just kind of how you, you mimic what you're around even if it's yeah. traumatizing to yourself you still mimic the behavior because it's what you know. Patience and anger were a big thing for me as a kid. Um, I would scream and shout and yell and my mom had, she put me in therapy and I got diagnosed with PTSD at that time Um, and she started trying to work on myself. From 15 to 18, my paternal side of my family wasn't in my picture at all. It was just me and my mom at that time growing up. I still didn't talk to my siblings. Uh, Occasionally, I'd get a Christmas gift in the mail from my grandmother. At 18 years old, my grandmother and my great aunt, I love those women, no matter how much (laughs) shit I go through with my father's side of the family. They set up for me to see my brother and sister for Christmas. Um, I hadn't seen them in eight years. I was literally having a panic attack waiting for them to come in the room. And we were at my great aunt's house, and they got dropped off, and they walked in, and it was like tears, hugging, social awkwardness for my brother and I, um, because that relationship had gone estranged and um, because of my father's influence and stories that he'd been told growing up. But for me and my sister, who she's literally my best friend, we just picked up where we left off. Like eight years didn't go by and I was still her big sister and she loved me to death. Um, And I still loved her to death. <laughs> I'm a protective big sister. So yeah. like out of all the shit that I talk about, not seeing my siblings for eight years in my life was really one of the hardest things ever. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm okay crying, especially as a case manager and a licensing specialist yeah. and wanting like about to be a foster mother. Like, like when people talk about how it doesn't matter, it's aggravates <laughs> me so, so much. Because I didn't see my siblings for eight years and my sister was literally a baby when I left. And eight years later, now she's my best friend. She's 18. Mm-hmm. We have Tuesday night FaceTime dinner dates. <laughs> like I go to visit. I just saw her college. She showed me around. She oh. comes down to visit. She's coming down for winter break with her friends from college. Oh, like gosh. we are each other's safe spaces. Yeah. And we didn't have a relationship. So like when they say like, oh, that baby's not bonded. 
with the older sibling, they're full of shit because that bond's always there. It doesn't go anywhere. And it doesn't matter, you know, the the seven-year age gap or any of that or her being a baby. Like, when I saw her and I hugged her after eight years of not seeing her, it was, I'm going to say, one of the happiest days of my life because I'm now married. That was also one of the happiest days of my life. But I started trying to rekindle the relationship. I tried to take them camping, things like that. Spend time with them as much as I could without being in my father's home. Whatever I could do to see them without being around him because at that point... I didn't process a lot of it still as much as I was in therapy. Now that I have good therapy, I realized how much I didn't have good therapy back then. (laughs) And I actually didn't really process anything or get through anything until I was an adult. I didn't have the right therapy that would help me because you need to find the right services that help the right child. So some, you know, equine may work for someone where CBD may work for someone. The stuff that I was in you know, while it was nice to talk to the therapist, I don't really feel like it dug deep enough or I may not have been ready to. There's a whole bunch of aspects of that. There's so many factors. Yeah. But at the time I wasn't getting what I needed in terms of helping me work on my coping skills, things of that nature. I started dabbling in substance use um, with my cool college boyfriend. So going through college from 18 to about 21 years old, I was dealing with substance abuse issues as well as being in an abusive relationship. We were physically abused. We were living in a house. We were selling drugs out of the house. Like it was the epitome of like living the generational cycle all over again. Looking back now, I'm like, I literally was the young version of my father when it came to like the abusive relationship that I was in and all of that. It just copied and pasted itself, the amount I was drinking, my anger. And eventually it took my ex's parents making him leave the house and me crashing my car into a semi truck to realize the state that I was in. One of the reasons I struggled with it for so long, because it was about five years that I was going through this cycle, was because I was still a straight A student. I was still getting honor roll at college. Um, And I like to point this out because people teach in health classes and stuff what abused children are supposed to look like. And I struggled with that my whole life because I never was what my health teacher told me in third grade. Like I never came in dirty clothes. I never showed up with my hair not washed. And that's something I made a new And you were making good grades. Yeah. And so I was always in honor roll and I had sports and I was in dance and I was being competitive in my sports because I had the support of my mother. So when my health teacher was like, you look like this if you're abused and I was like well then I guess I don't count as abused because I don't look like that and I kind of carried that issue of self-image from childhood all the way into adulthood when I was dealing with substance abuse because they're like if you're a substance abuse user you look like this and it's you know someone homeless on the street begging for money with you know scratch marks on their face I was like well I'm a straight A college student and I own my own apartment granted I own my own apartment because we're selling drugs on the side but, you know, I'm a straight A student, so I must yeah. be fine. And I, I kind of give that to why it took me so long to get out of the cycle was because I was like, well, as long as I don't present as an abused kid and I don't mm-hmm. present as someone who uses substance abuse and I don't present as anyone with issues and I just internalize it all, then I'll be fine. So you were hypervigilant in your adulthood too. Yes, everything carried over. Yeah. Which I think is really important to realize when you're working with the foster care system is like, this doesn't just stop when they turn 18. Like it's an ongoing battle for your rest of your life. I'm still in therapy. My therapist is awesome. So finally, I realize that drug addiction doesn't look like what people think it does and abusive relationships don't realize what they think it does. I finally came to an understanding that I was actually raped by my boyfriend in college, which I didn't realize right when it happened I didn't because he was my boyfriend like both of those two things can't happen it happens in an alley by a stranger like there's this whole understanding of what things are so I always said well I don't look like that so that's not me which then like how do you process the trauma of it when you're convincing yourself that everything's 
Okay. Yeah. And if you're not processing the trauma of it, then it's amplifying and turning into bigger issues. When I finally decided to start working on myself, I got court ordered because I had a DWI from crashing into the truck. I got put in a six month outpatient program while I was in college, keeping straight A's. No one knew at the college. From there, I started seeing a therapist that seemed to actually be helping me work on coping skills and wasn't just like I was going in there and he was like, tell me about your day. It was like, okay, let's address your father issues. Like I had a kiddo that was very poignant and said, really like this therapist, but I think it's time for a change. And we're talking about a six-year-old at this point. Oh my gosh. I know. And I was like, so I think it's so valuable to be able to say that. Finally started working on myself, found yoga at the, this time, um, which is a main tool for me that I use now in my adulthood, um, as well as therapy um, and just kind of changing the environment. At that time, my sobriety period and therapy, I tried multiple times to sit down with my father and do the whole make amends thing because that's what you're supposed to do not for the other person but for yourself we tried a few times with a mediator which was usually my grandmother it never worked it would always end in a fight or an argument in his mind he was just doing what he had to do to parent me and so he doesn't see any wrong in it when we try to communicate which honestly when I was first processing that hurt a lot because my father didn't see any wrong in the way he beat me And it caused a a little bit more trauma. Like instead of making anything better, it made it worse. Yeah. I I kept trying to make amends for a very long time. There was a time where I showed up with my, at that time, boyfriend and his um, toddler. He showed up for Thanksgiving and then he didn't let us in. That was very, I want to say traumatic all over again for me because we showed up to have dinner with the whole family. We were all dressed. We were going to have, you know, siblings were there. My cousins were there. My grandparents were there. And my grandmother was there. And Had you been invited? Yes. And then. And didn't like yes. Him. And he did that for my college graduation as well, where I, my mom has told me to always keep my side of the street clean, whether it's a abusive ex, whether it's my father, a boss you don't like. Do your due diligence to be the best person you can be, no matter how, how bad they are or how bad they treat you. So I've invited him to my graduate college graduation. I invited him to my wedding two years ago. But it's almost like when you do that, he's continuing to punish you for his actions. At the point of my college Yes, I still wasn't there yet for yeah. my wedding. <laughs> Honestly, I could give two. Yeah. It was just, again, me keeping the side of my street clean at that point because yeah. I've become, I've processed past that point. Do you think How, that there will ever be a time where you will not feel the need to invite or try to include? Yep. Now, pass them. <laughs> <laughs> one because we good (laughs) my wedding was the last one at this point especially because I'm trying to have children yes whether it's through foster care whether it's biological I don't want him around them yeah it's it's more so me protecting my children as a mother than it is like looking for you know his validation so yeah so I'm at that point now it was just a constant cycle of that and it's actually something that I try to explain to my siblings as well because they still deal with it because he raised them. So my sister goes to tournaments, things like that. He'll say he's going to show up to something, doesn't show up. It's just a a chronic cycle that he's, he does to control situations. Mm -hmm. At this point, he's blocked me on his phone. He's blocked me on social media. He has pretty much cut me out of his life completely and entirely because I think I'm just a reminder of who he actually is and not who people Mm -hmm. walk around him on eggshells and pretend he's not. And everything he's done wrong. Yes. And how he's treated. Yes. Yeah, you haven't complied with the narrative that he has. Everybody else seems to be like, oh, that's what happened? Okay. Then you and your mom are maybe the only two people. No, I don't know. But from so far, it sounds like the ones that are like, no, that's not what happened. Like, Yeah. And as I slowly become 
an adult. I think the rest of my family's finally understanding that slowly. Just from what I hear from my sister of, you know, well, he's not invited to Christmas anymore at uncle so-and-so's house and things like people. It took him 20 years, but people are finally realizing like the type of person he is and how he controls situations. And you can literally just choose to not have people like that in your life. I feel like yeah, the way yeah. we... It's awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> the, way, the way my father's side of the family was raised, it was like we had these people that acted this way, but that was just how our family was. And now as we get more open-minded with these new generations and we're getting older, they're just like, wait, no, we don't have to do that. You know, we don't have to invite him to our wedding. We don't have to invite him over for this barbecue. We don't have to do that. Moving on from there. I'm now 26 at this point. Um, I still go to therapy. Um, I'm still working on myself. Some things I think are harder because of what I've been through with the PTSD and the physical abuse and the emotional abuse and, you know, all of that trauma I've been through. I got diagnosed with CPTSD. The inner cynic in me was like, I'm so screwed up. They had to add another letter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking when you said C, I said, oh, she's got the special one. It's actually like really uncommon to find someone who just has PTSD, not common. Yes, yeah. PTSD. Like, yeah. super rare for someone to just Like, because that's, like, an accident. That's, like, something one, one episode. But yeah. most yeah. people, especially, like, that grow up in, in families like this or have these situations, it's not something that happens one time, and then they go back to being a perfect parent. What this therapist bought to attention to me was I was originally diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety, and depression. Like that was, and there, she was like, no, you have CPTSD. The anxiety and depression is a symptom of the CPSD not being taken care of properly. And I also have what I call, I say I have OCD all the time. I don't actually have OCD, but it's me trying to control the situation. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a symptom of the PTSD. Mm-hmm. So I went from all of these diagnoses to you just have PTSD. And if you learn good coping skills, all of the other diagnoses will then slowly lower down Mm -hmm. the depression since I've been doing proper therapy that works for me it's pretty much gone at this point I did try to commit suicide at one point in college since I've had this therapist and have been working with this type of therapy that I've been working with I haven't had any type of ideation or thoughts or anything of that nature the anxiety is what's the worst for me. I get social anxiety. I get sensory issues. My husband and I use a term, uh, my cup is full, is how we've learned to communicate it to each other. Whether it's lighting, whether it's noise, whether it's the amount of people that I've been around. Um, if he comes home or we're out to, we're out in public and I just, I'm done and I can't do it anymore. I just say my cup is full. That's kind of my cue for my anxiety is really heightened and I need to get out of the situation to a place that I feel safe, which is still happening as an adult. It's still a work in progress. Sometimes, you know, I'm quote unquote fine and can go to parties and sometimes, you know, fireworks are really loud and there's a lot of talking and it's super overwhelming for me and I have to go home and cry because it's, it's still there. It doesn't go away when when you turn, you know, 21 and leave the foster care system or leave the trauma behind you in the past. It's something you still have to constantly work on. Well, and you, your body was like trained to constantly be anxious and worry about what he was going to do to you for years and years and years. Yeah, the hypervigilance, I'm sure it stayed with you mm-hmm. to some degree. It's like growing up in a war zone, right? Yeah. I interviewed a babysitter today. I was showing her around the house and like I was like, fire extinguishers here, foods here, snacks here, emergency numbers here. Like I'm showing her everything. Everything. Like where every childproof lock is in my house, she's like, "You're like overly prepared." And, 
and Alex, my husband, laughed. He's like, ah, and I was like, I'm sorry, I have control issues. This is, you know, my house, so I get to control but please it. Please work for me. <laughs> but she actually seemed to like it, so that was kind of nice. She is currently going to nursing school and is they're going through an EMT program, so I think she appreciated like the safety things that I did oh, around yeah. the house and like my pool safety and stuff. She's like, oh, that's smart. So it, it was appreciated, which I always value when, it, especially because she's like validating my control in the situation. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, thank you. See, see. I was like looking at my husband like, see, she said it's okay. Like, <laughs> I'm prepared. But I think it's really important as a child who is completely betrayed and abused by parents. One thing that I would want to tell kids in the system or teenagers listening or adults who have aged out of the system Like you are not responsible for your parent. You're not responsible for their success. You're not responsible for their happiness. And that was something I struggled with for a very long time with my father, but also my mother, because I, you know, she was my, she was my safe spot. So I always wanted her to be happy. And I still have that issue today where I'm overly bonded to my mother because she was the only one there. You are not responsible for your parents. You are not responsible for their actions. You're not responsible for how they treated you as well as you can change the cycle if there is that generational cycle and it can be broken takes a lot of hard work it's not definitely not the easy route like it's not the path of least resistance (laughs) but it's the more rewarding path when it comes to it because when I sit in my house now where we bought a home where I can have children and there's a playroom and they have their own rooms and there's a crib and like I literally just look and I'm just like I can't believe this is like I, I got this I went from living in like this really shitty ranch sharing a bedroom with my three siblings like my my two other siblings in one room with my dad drinking and only being alcohol in the fridge to like I have a house with food in it and not even like normal food like nice gluten free dairy free <laughs> like like in my well, but even look at like the the emotional health of the two households like that that was a place where fear lived. Mm-hmm. And this is like the safe, like you and your husband have a safe word for like stimulation and, you know, you're trauma informed and you're going to be bringing foster kids into your home soon. So are, are you currently licensed or you're about to be? We're waiting for backgrounds and then we're and then we're licensed and everything okay. else is done. So we're- you've been a case manager. Yes. And a licensing specialist. Yes. And now you are um, just waiting on the final steps for your foster license. Like, look at the difference, like, between what you came into this world living in to what you're producing for the next generation. It's huge. And and that was actually like talking about the next generation. I actually had a really large fear for a very long time in terms of starting motherhood. Not so much for children in the foster care system because I can identify and empathize with their trauma because I've had my own. But when it came to having my own biological child, I talked to my therapist and we identified because I was like, I don't know if I want one. And she was like, well, why? And we dug for sessions and there was a fear that I was going to continue the the cycle generationally, bloodline wise, as well as the horrible things that happened to me in high school and college, the abusive relationships, the rapes, the things of like, I didn't want to bring something into this world that wasn't traumatized and then traumatize it. So I was like, I'm just going to prevent this from happening. And then I don't have to worry about another child being traumatized in the world. Versus if I take foster kids, they're already traumatized. I can help them. them. I know how to help them already because I've been through that. I can help them. 
them. Yeah. And that was kind of how I was understanding it. And my therapist said, you're not giving you or your husband enough credit for the home you've provided. Like you're not in that, like you said, how far I've come from being mm-hmm. in that situation of living in fear and hypervigilance to living in a home where either one of my husband and I can come home and cry in the other one's arms and talk about mm-hmm. our emotions comfortably without judgment. Right. Wow. And she's like, you're not giving yourself any credit for the good parts of what you've grown through. The safe space that you've yeah. created yeah. in all aspects and of also, your life. You're totally going to screw up as a parent. Oh, yeah. Because we yeah. all do. <laughs> <Yes>. and, <laughs> and like, you'll beat yourself up and then you'll have mom friends that are like, no, kids are old, don't worry. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> but um, parenting requires like 100% perfection if we like conform to society standards. And that's don't why I like circle of security because yeah. you just have to be good enough. Well, and one of the big things we talked about that I feel like I didn't learn growing up was healthy boundaries for multiple reasons. Um, I mean, you guys heard my story from my father's side. Um, so, and that was something my therapist pointed out to me. She's like, one, she's like, what's one thing you know now that you didn't know growing up that you wish you knew? And I said, how to set healthy boundaries. Uh-huh. And she was like, that's one thing your child's going to have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's yes. like, I can guarantee it because it's so important to you. Yeah. Like yeah. I won't have friendships, acquaintances. I won't work for a place that doesn't respect healthy boundaries. Like it is my number one uh-huh. thing you have to respect. It's safe. My, so I'm laughing because I have an eight year old dog. Daughter, and she had she talks about boundaries a lot but she had a conflict at school with another child and she's like Darcy just cannot respect my boundaries I'm obsessed with her they just like to party she's like <laughs> anyway I was like I didn't even really understand boundaries so it's probably 30 plus it is I mean you can't meet and mesh and have a good relationship everybody has to have good boundaries but I guarantee you your kids will know what boundaries are because you'll I, yes make... I won't let them leave the house <laughs> which is crossing yeah. a boundary <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but but so that was a couple of things I, I spoke to my therapist about and I also just want to make a note um, in regards to the substance abuse and things that I go, I've gone through whether it's a teenager who is dabbling in it because that's what they were raised in. I was exposed to painkillers through um, a doctor prescription. Whatever the reason is that someone might be using and then listening to this, I just want to point out that like if you seek therapy or treatment or whatever it may be and don't just like try to cut it out, but actually dig deep and take the time to reveal the pain and like open the band gate and deal with the issues of the trauma or whatever it is that's internally bothering you. You may not even know what it is, but just taking time to sit and like talk to someone and reflect on internally what is the the actual true issue. You know, the substance abuse is a, a lot of times a symptom. And that was something I learned through learning good coping skills is it's, it's a it sim- wasn't the core problem for you. Yes. And so, it's not for a lot of people. Yes. yes. So I really learned that in Judge Tepper's courtroom. She runs a trauma-informed courtroom and she's not looking at like what you did. She's looking at why you did it and mm-hmm. how to help you not do it again. So I just think that's really important. Whether it's a teenager using, a bio parent using, whatever the case may be, like you have to think about what they've been through and what their story is and not what they're doing to cope with it. Do yeah. you think that with all of your healthy boundaries and all the work that you've done, have you been able to set healthy boundaries with the substance that um, you were abusing previously after you did all of that work? Or is it something that you've just had to say, I can't do this ever again? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, yes, for the substances that are healthy to use as an adult, like 
in America like legally. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't, you know, I'm not like, yes, I healthily use cocaine. <laughs> no, um, I was pre diabetic. <laughs> Please edit all of that out. <laughs> Can I just say that my daughter got lost at school last week for like five minutes? I like absolutely panicked. Like, panic. Like, cortisol filled my brain. I went and got, a, I don't even eat ice cream. I went and got a milkshake. I was like, I just want chocolate cake. And I didn't have access to a chocolate cake. So I went and got a milkshake. And I went home and went to bed at 6.45. And that was my drug of choice. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was my drug of choice. Food. Yes. No. And I mean, complete side note with one sentence here. Like I I do personal training and stuff like that on the side. And I talk about that healthy relationship with food all the time for my clients who are trying, you know, lose 100, Mm -hmm. 150 pounds. What's the relationship you have with food and why you do you eat it? Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, I was sober for over five years, completely from everything, alcohol, and then everything I dabbled with in college. So since I'm moved into my home in April was the first time I had a drink. It was a glass of champagne to get to that point took five plus years of therapy and working on my coping skills and building a support system. That's one of the biggest things. Like I didn't make that decision on my own that it was okay. I consulted my therapist. I consulted my husband. I consulted my friends. I consulted so many people to, cause they, they know me and they know what I've been through and you know, they know my triggers. They know what to look for if something were concerning was to arise. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing this as a quote unquote relapse, but a sense of growth of getting past that and not using it as a coping skill anymore really just being able to like toast champagne at a wedding because like it like gives it more power when you're like I can't have it at all it feels like it's control like it is you you yeah. are the sober person yeah and it's your identity and there's so many questions that go along with it for everyone and it felt like it was becoming more of a nuisance than a solution Ooh, sip this beer we're you know at a brewery trying you know samples of same at whatever it is like it was more so becoming a problem in my life working through the therapy working with building my support system. We moved into our new house in April and I had a glass of champagne with my mother, my father, and my husband the night we moved in. My oh. stepfather. Sorry. I'm going to clarify that as yes. well. <laughs> my stepfather, like I said, has been He's friends with dad. my mother for since they were 15. So he is my dad. He walked me down the aisle. When I need help with something, he is my father. I call him. I even text him. I say, I have a dad question because it's still kind of new to me because they've only been together for about six years married. They, I mean, they've been together as friends forever. But yes, I, I do believe that you can get past that point of I can't have anything it's not okay I'll you know run and do heroin if I have a glass of champagne because I did do the work I did put it in I did find a accountability system and a support system and a therapist that worked for me and you have to keep doing it after you decide to adjust back into society I'm still going to my therapist I'm still telling her when I have a drink I'm still telling my husband when I have a drink you know that's something that I have to hold myself accountable for because I know what I can slip back into and everyone everyone has a part of them that you know could be a part where you grew from that you could slip back into and it's doing the work constantly to constantly grow from that person. Can you give me a word to describe foster care? Well, the first thought was cluster. Um, <laughs> dumpster fire. <laughs> I was going to say growing in terms of needing development. So like it's in it's in growth. growth. Yes, it needs growth. It needs growth. Oh, requiring of growth. <laughs> it's requiring of growth. Stunted. Growth in actually let's go with this growth in many ways. Growth in the terms that it needs growth. Growth in the terms that it is growth because things are coming up now that's going to make it grow. 
growth in the terms of in the foster care system with the right foster parents, children grow. Lots of growth. Lots so of growth. The word growth the is word perfect. Growth is what we're going to go with. <laughs> Needs growth, gives growth, has growth, probably has some growths growing on the back of it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us what your self-care routine is? So my self-care routine is, so I am a firm believer in the wellness wheel. If anyone has ever heard of it, if not, you can Google it. I'm not going to explain it on here. But the idea is that there's multiple levels of wellness, social, physical, mental, emotional. I make sure that I do something for each of those pieces of wellness every week for myself, whether it's talking to a financial advisor, whether it's going to yoga for my emotional, mental, physical health, whether it's having a weekly dinner date with my mother or my sister, um, I make sure that I get all of those types of wellness in. The most, most, most important one for me is the the breath work and the yoga um, and my therapist. Those are like, if I have, I had to get rid of all of my types of wellness and I could only keep like one or two things, it would be doing breath work, meditation, yoga, and talking to my therapist. Those are my top two. And working out. I love working out. I think you need to be self-care expert on the podcast and I think we need to bring you back to teach us all the, the breathing stuff. Definitely. What is one positive change that you would like to see in foster care? Just one. The education of what it actually is to be a foster home to the public. I think that's very 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 relevant in the time that we are in in this moment in this space. In this week. In this week. <laughs> no that would probably be my answer anyway without the current events because I think that's very important as I've been going through the process everyone's like oh I can never do that and then I explain like well you can do it this way you can do it this way that's we're yeah, just talking about like, that just talked about that you know oh. first, you can't do long term you can do short term we still need beds overnight like do you have a spare bedroom do you like teenagers can you yeah. take them for the night yeah what do you think our community can do to prevent more kids from needing to come into care more proactive in in the community services for everyone what like I was talking before we started recording about how um, I want to take yoga to bio families and to children and things like that and teaching them regulation before it becomes an out-of-home case, things like that. I think more proactive services pre-removal. So like more services when you're kind of in that like safe at home phase or things like that. That, but also I mean just offering them in the community in general so you don't even, even get, get to that at home. point yeah like, there's not and there's we're a very reactive world it's like problem happens let's fix it try to prevent it from happening by giving humans the right tools to not let it happen in the first place and then also taking away the stigma of people using those tools what are your goals to make positive change in our community? Right at the forefront, and this is a long-term goal, it's going to take time, but um, my plan is to build a nonprofit that is focused on the wellness of everyone in the child welfare system. Um, this has been newly developed, but I want to bring breathwork, meditation, mindfulness, um, any type of holistic-based tool to the foster families, to the foster children, to the bio families, to the caregivers, relative, non-relative, to the case managers, to the licensing specialists, to the gals, to the attorneys <laughs> reading their reports, everyone Everything. being experienced, to the therapist talking to the child in CPT, you know, going through the child protections team and all of that stuff because we're all exposed to the trauma the children yes but now us taking care of them us secondary them dis- trauma them yeah. disclosing it to us like learning how to regulate yourself to regulate the children in whatever capacity you have a relationship with that's my goal is to bring holistic wellness to the child welfare system the ppt i used to teach ppt when i was a licensing specialist with the you know ceus that the foster homes have to do and the case managers have to do and the license like i still i still have my child welfare case manager certification i've just 
kept it because I want to work in the system still. And I think it's important for me to keep up with the continuing education for it. But being able to say like they have a slide in the PBT curriculum that's like stop, drop and roll. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I do. So like they're like stop, drop and roll, which, okay, cool. So if a kid's freaking out, I'm going to stop. But what if they said stop, take a breath? through your nose so that you're taking that fight, flight, or freeze and bringing in the parasympathetic nervous system so that you're thinking with the prefrontal cortex and not with the amygdala. Like, what if they put science behind it? Like, that's your stop. Not stop, throw your emotions aside, remember the child's there and you can't react. Like, (laughs) that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. That's hilarious. So, like, what if we taught breath work for foster parents or, um, or bio parents? Or come to my house and do all of this. Yes. So, thank you so much for uh, driving out and chatting with us today. Definitely. This thank was you quite for... a fun, uh, fun little episode. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing you for your experience. Yeah. Thank you for letting me share it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.